Good evening, friends. In Matthew chapter 26, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, that's where we're going to start for tonight, if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> Let's pray together, shall we? Father, what a powerful time to worship you. That Jesus, your name, really is above all names. You have no rival. What a powerful reminder. I was so blessed. And I know that you were, as we sang to you. I know it blesses your heart, God. Father, I pray, though, that as we say those words, that we actually are moved by them, not just in an experience as we're singing to you, but like our lives, like everything about us would be about you, Jesus, because you have no rival. Not just out in the universe or out in the world, but even in our own lives, that you have no rival. That, God, in my life, there is no rival. You have preeminence. Holy Spirit, I pray you would do a work tonight like never before. That, Father, you would draw people to Jesus and that, Holy Spirit, you would convict of sin. That we would see salvation come to this place. That people would truly surrender and become disciples and followers of Christ. Because of what you paid and what you did. So, God, we commit this time to you and we ask... I pray that you would show up and show off for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone agrees, says, amen. In verse 38, says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And I wonder if there's people in the room that you would sit there and go, Okay, I would believe in Jesus if he would just show up. Well, he already did. Guys, do you realize that Jesus grew up in this 40-square-acre town, Nazareth? Man, he, everyone knew everyone's business. He lived some 33-ish years, and yet no one on the planet has had more influence on planet Earth as Jesus has. With all the conquerors throughout the ages... Kings, queens, monarchs, monarchies, no one, is, is, no one compares with Jesus. And so for some of you, you sit there and go, I just want to have this experience. But what would that actually do for you? Guys, it's the same thing that these scribes said. These were the guys that it was their job to recognize the Messiah when he showed up. That was their job, and they missed it. They said, just show us some signs. It's kind of like, well, what signs? What else do you need? I mean, he's healing people. I mean, people who were deaf would come to him. They'd go home hearing. People that were blind, they would go home seeing. Friends, he brought a little 12-year-old girl back from the dead. He fed some 20,000-plus people with a little boy's lunch. What else are you needing to see? And yet they kept asking. You sit there and go, well, I'm not seeing any of that kind of stuff. I don't know that God still does that. Oh, I do. I just don't think we give him credit for it. Guys, has anyone, pray, 
Has anyone had, come, you've had somebody come up to you before and say they've got like a medical thing and they have to, take, they have to do tests. So they go get checked and the doctor says, I'm not comfortable with this. We need to run a few more tests. Has anybody had that? And they tell you about it and it's like, would you pray for me? So you pray. And then the tests come back and they go, it's all clear. Don't worry about it. Do you ever stop and think that maybe there was something wrong and then God healed in the midst of it? That God did something? Do we ever do that? It's like, oh, no, the test didn't. They just showed that there was actually nothing. What if God actually did something? A few years ago, there was this, uh, I share this story all the time because it's just so rad. I remember there's this young couple, and I, I was teaching our young adult ministry on Thursday nights, and they always sat in the back, and I could never get to them. Uh, they'd come after the service started, and then when I'm done preaching, everyone just kind of filled in, and they just kind of walked in the back, or walked out the back. I just never got to talk to them, except one Sunday morning, I sh they showed up at the worship service, and I never saw them there. So at the end of the service, uh, our senior pastor at the time, he said, uh, hey, pastor's going to be up front if you want to pray for anything. Just come forward. They'd love to pray with you. So I'm standing there, and here they come. I thought, I finally get to know them. But have you ever known someone or seen someone, but you, you never knew their name, but it's been too long, and so you can't ask them because it feels awkward? You know what I'm saying? Or they told you their name, and then you forgot, but it, you pretended like you've known it forever. And Yeah, so this is what it felt like. So I'm like, oh, crud, what do I call them? Holy Spirit, give me their name. Give me their name. Give me their name. Buckaroo. Okay, I'm, gonna call them, I'm just joking. So I didn't call them Buckaroo, but they came forward and said, hey, guys, Good to see you both. And so what can I pray for you about? And she says, I was just wondering if you could pray for my shoulder. And in all honesty, guys, I kind of, <laughs> it's like, real, just your shoulder? I was expecting like something bigger. But she, she started tearing up. And then in my mind, I'm going, you're tearing up over a shoulder. There must be more to the story. So I asked her, I said, is, like, is there, there's some story behind this that's making it be, make, making you become so emotional about it? And, and she said, uh. Um, well, I'm working on a PhD work at USC to be a physical therapist. And I went, oh. And then she starts crying. I said, you've always wanted to do this? And she says, <gasps> I said, if, it's, and if this doesn't change, you won't be able to do it. <laughs> I said, well, let's pray. Let's pray. And who knows what he's going to do? And so I, I came up to them, and I put my hand on his shoulder as her boyfriend at the time. And I, I got to do their wedding a little, little while after that. And I put my hand on her shoulder, not like, I didn't death grip it, like, now it's healed. I didn't do that. But I just put my hand on her shoulder. And this is the passage that came to my mind. It's out of Matthew chapter 8, where the leprous man comes running up to Jesus, and he doesn't even ask a question. He just makes a statement of faith. He says this, if you want to, you can make me clean. If you want to, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's not a request. He just makes a statement of fact. It's a statement of faith. So I just said this, Jesus, if you want to, you can heal her. Amen. And that was it. And they kind of looked up going, like, you're a professional? I mean, that's how you pray? Is that, that's, that's what the look looked like? So then I asked, I said, so how, how does your shoulder feel? And she starts to move and she goes, I guess it's better. And I was like, oh, good. I said, well, do me a favor. Tomorrow, here's my email. Email me. The next morning I get, to the, I get to the office. I totally forgot about all this. And I turn on my computer and there's an email from her. And it's long. And this could be really good, or this could be really bad. Like, it could be just this crazy, oh my gosh, and she just has this verbal vomit time, just because she's so excited, or she is so ticked and it's just going to land to me, because in that one moment, I screwed it all up, so I'm just getting ready. And the first line says this, Brian, last night was the first night I slept in the last 10 years without pain. 
And I went, oh. And then I screamed. I'm like, ah. Then my assistant's outside my door. She goes, are you all right? I'm just reading emails, which is kind of weird. That's how you read emails. And then I kept going. And this young adult, at one point in her email, said this. Brian, even if it's just for a day, I know that my God is able. And I, I just looked at that, and I went, God, I don't know if I have that much faith. I don't know if I've surrendered my life completely in that way, that if I just get to taste healing and then you take it away, if I'm okay with that. So I email her back, but <laughs> have you ever gotten a really long message? And then you feel the pressure to make sure that your message back is just as long, or you don't really care about them as much. You know what I'm talking about? But I'm sitting there going, this is like a novel. So I'm like, okay. So I'm, hey, Michelle, what's up? What's your favorite shrub? Like, I don't know what else to talk about. I'm just throwing stuff in there. I said, this is incredible. Praise God. And I said, hey, on Wednesday, give it a couple days on Wednesday. I want you to email me back. So on Wednesday comes, I can't wait. So I email her. She emails me back. She says, yesterday I went swimming and there was no pain. I'm like, what the? It works? Like, prayer still works? And the next week she comes to our worship service. And she goes, Brian, you want to hear more about this? I was like, I'm tired of your miracles. You just keep that junk to yourself. I said, of course I want to hear. She goes, I went to my physical therapist, and he started doing all that stuff, make, see how it's going, and he looks at her and he says, I don't understand it. It's like you never got hurt. And I just stood there looking at her. And I wonder how many of you, when you hear that story, the first thing you say is this, then why didn't he do that for my mom? Why didn't he do that for my dad? And I can't answer that question. And here's the thing about being a pastor. One, people don't know what we do for a living. <laughs> Sometimes we don't either. It's like we only work Sundays. That's it. Don't worry about it. The thing that's hard is that there's a lot of people that say, Brian, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. This is what's hard. This is what's hard. This is what's hard. And it gets a little bit heavy. I was speaking at a camp about a month ago, a different camp. There's a 25, 26-year-old young lady there. She's one of the leaders for her youth group. After the second message, she comes walking up, and she says, I just want to tell you, God's really been using your messages to speak to my life. I said, oh, well, praise God. That's fantastic. I said, why don't you tell me what's he been teaching you? And she said, about a month ago, I was diagnosed with cancer of the spine, and my jaw dropped. And I don't know why. It's like I've, ne I've never met anyone who's had that. And the, th the first thought that came to my mind, and I actually said it, I looked at her, and I said, and you're here? A month ago, this is what you were told, and you're here? She said, well, I got to be here with the kids. The next chapel, I see her. She's standing in the middle, like right or, like in this part. And she's got her hands up in worship. And I just, it was such a, it was this picture. Don't mind me sharing this stuff, right? It's just this picture. I'm sitting there going, you have cancer on your spine. And you're in worship to Jesus. For those of you that need a sign, I wish you were there. Because the peace that she had and the adoration for the Savior who could fix it and hadn't done it yet, the circumstances did not change her worship of the Jesus that she adored. For me, that's your sign. The fact that Jesus can take a life and change us so drastically. Friends, that's the sign. What did they want? They just wanted parlor tricks. 
do these magic tricks so we can believe. And what's Jesus' response? He answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, another reason why I believe Jonah and the fish story is because the dude that pulled off Easter did. Friends, when you can, like, when you, when you predict your own resurrection from the dead and pull it off, I'll give you props. But until then, Jesus wins. And if Jesus, who pulled off Easter, believes in it, I'll believe it. He says, let me just share the sign. Like, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. The Son of Man is going to go to the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back from the dead. This is what's going to happen, and this is the greatest sign of all. Then in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, the people of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Think about it. In that moment, they're saying, show us a sign. And he's like, you've heard about Jonah, and the people of Nineveh repented because of what Jonah preached, and you're asking for a little trick. I'm telling you, yeah, that's Jonah, but someone far greater than Jonah is standing right in front of you. In fact, if you, gosh, I kind of wish that he would have just said it, but he knows the timing. He's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The creator of the universe is standing before them, and they can't recognize him. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word firstborn is better translated as pre-existent one or existing before or the word superior, that Jesus is superior than anything and everything else. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Does that bug you? Everything was created by him, no, I like that part, and for him. You ever seen a sunset that just makes you go, oh, and usually those are the ones that go, oh, we take a, well, I don't have social media anymore, but you take a picture. People take a picture and they post it, right? It's like once they, once, you, there's certain sunsets that pop out, and I'm telling you, all of a sudden, all these posts just show up with, wow, and you'll see Christians, praise God, look at God's creation, look at God's beauty. And then for some reason, the person that doesn't believe in God wants to come and go, that doesn't prove there's a God. But then gives no explanation afterwards. Who here likes the arts? I just want to encourage you for just a second. You like the arts. Can I just encourage you for just a second? So does God, because he made them. How good of an artist is he? He's an incredible engineer. We've looked at that. Next time, next time, in the morning, 
when the sun is just kind of bearing down on the white of the snow, God made that. The next time you see a sunrise, if you ever get up that early, God made that. He created that. When the sun sets after this massive rain and the clouds are starting to, starting to go and the sun is behind a cloud and it's just the rays are coming out from behind it, God painted that. For those of you that like the arts, the reason you're creative is because God is. And worship him with your art. Enjoy him with your arts and realize that he loves this stuff. He created the concept of art. He created the concept of beauty. He created the concept of wisdom. He created the concept of humor and laughter and joy and happiness. Guys, when God created everything, when you look in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, in verse 31, it says that God looked at everything that he created and he said it is very good. When you look up that phrase or that word good in the Hebrew, here's what that word means. We think good means it's not, as, it's not best because it's just good. This is what that word means. It means good, merry, pleasant, desirable, in order, usable, efficient, friendly, kind, morally excellent, happy, and right. That's what that means. He created everything perfectly, beautifully. For what? For our enjoyment and for his glory. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, first, top dog, nothing's close, no one's around him. He's in charge, but he is the most important thing, the most important person in our lives, and there's no second. It's just Jesus, and everything else is equal below, just him. Oh, Brian, where's, where's your wife land in that? Jesus is first. Why? Because if I love Jesus most, I will love her best. It's when I flip it, I won't be loving my wife well when Jesus is not preeminent. I won't be a good dad if Jesus isn't preeminent. The greatest competition to number one preeminent you know what it is? You know the greatest competition to Jesus in your life is? Sin. Mm -mm. Whatever's number two. Whatever's number two is the greatest competition to number one. I'm telling you, let Jesus worship him as preeminent. Nothing compares to him. He has no rival. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, catch it, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, reconciling to himself. Guys, this is the part that is so humbling to me. In Genesis chapter 1, God created everything perfect. And two chapters later, we jacked the whole thing up. We broke it all. We broke it. We messed it up. And friends, you're not a sinner because there's sin in the world. There's sin in the world because we're sinners. We brought it. We think, oh, I'm just a victim of sin. We brought the sin. That's our rebellion against God. We messed up, and yet God reconciles us to himself. I always figure if a person wrongs me, that they're the person that has to come and say, I'm sorry, and yet God, who's perfect, reconciles us to himself. He took the first step. He initiated. And how do we know? Because Christmas happened. 
Jesus showed up. Do you realize that when Jesus first came, no one knew about it except some shepherds who had the most terrifying experience of their lives? Imagine one angel showing up and glory, just kind of saying, hey, peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's like it's this cute, cute little conversation. And all of a sudden, as that one angel speaking, this host of the heavenly host, this massive amount, it's my conviction. I don't know if it's true. Don't quote me. I, don't, I, don't, I think they all showed up. I think every angel showed up for this sucker. Can you imagine tens or hundreds of millions of angels just covering the night sky, just giving glory to God because the Messiah is that little baby and no one else knew about it. I remember, uh, do you guys have a neighborhood around you that Christmas lights galore? I'm talking about, do some of you live in that neighborhood? Okay, it's terrifyingly weird, but awesome. Because I don't want to pay the electric bill, but I'm glad that they do. And so I, we have that street where I live, and it used to be where you could walk it. It was kind of fun. And so I remember walking along, and it's just tons of stuff, just tons. And I see this one house, no joke, just three crosses lit up in the yard. And so the family's all doing something. There's like my parents are there and a couple others, and they're walking with the kids and Kelly. And, and so I just walk over there by myself, and I'm looking. And in my head, I, I started thinking this. Dude, wrong holiday. Like, that's Easter. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, Hey, stupid. He got it right. And I'm like, oh, I hate when you do that. Here I'm standing in judgment, the guy that lit up his house, and I'm walking through his neighborhood because they all did it, and I just got like one little strand of lights on my house. And I felt like the Holy Spirit's like, hey, stupid, he got it right. Why? Because the manger of the Messiah is in the shadow of the cross of Christ. The whole purpose for Jesus' coming was to take our place. I feel like the Holy Spirit just nailed me with that. And I, I, I actually I stepped back. I was like, well done. Great job. I've never forgotten that. Jesus came. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus came and Jesus laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed... He went into a garden after he'd spent time with his disciples and Judas had already gone off to, to tell the, the religious leaders where they could find him, to betray him. And Jesus takes his disciples and he takes three, Peter, James, and John, and he brings them further along and he says, he's got to pray. And the Bible says that Jesus goes about a stone's throw away and collapses to the ground and says this, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. What's he saying when he says that? Take this cup from me. In the Old Testament, the cup would be a representation of the wrath of God. So what he's saying is, take your wrath from me, but not my will. Your will be done. But don't picture it just like this one little statement. He's at peace, friends. Guys, Luke is the only one who, met, who mentions this in his gospel account, and he should have because he's the doctor. He said that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood. Do you realize that there is a medical condition that if you are under so much stress and you are terrified of something that you will sweat drops of blood? It's called hematidrosis. The capillaries in your forehead will burst and you will sweat drops of blood. Jesus is terrified, so don't picture him in the garden just saying, this is great, I want this. He's saying, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go, I don't want to do it. But not in my will. Your will be done. And he comes back to his disciples and they're sleeping. 
And so you kind of, can you imagine just kicking them? Guys, wake up. I know, I know the flesh is weak, but the spirit's willing. You got to pray. I used to judge them for it. But have you ever tried to pray when, after you get into bed? Like, like I'm going to pray. So you get into bed and you do the wiggle. You know the wiggle? You're trying to find that spot that's just going to take you into dreamland. She's like, where is it? Where is it? Boop, there it is. There it is. Yeah, that's good. That's it. And then you start to pray. Jesus, and you're gone. <laughs> Twelve hours later, you wake up. Amen. 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 I was in prayer all night. Amen. I used to judge him until I realized I'm the same way. The Bible says he goes away again and prays the same thing. Comes back, they're sleeping, goes away again. But guys, it's not just that one statement that he prayed. John 17 is his prayer in the garden. And it's the only time when I see Jesus pray where he says, this is what I want. Every other time when you see Jesus speaking, he's like, I only do the things that I, I only do the things I see the Father doing. I only say the things I hear him saying. It's never, this is what I want. But in his prayer to the Father, he says, this is what I want. I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see me in all of my glory. Can you imagine him saying that? And then saying, but take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And in the silence of the Father, it was as if the Father was expressing and explaining, if you want this, you have to take that. And so that's why he said, not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus stopped asking after that. He goes to the disciples and he says, wake up, my betrayer's at hand. And he sees this little group of people, this little mob, come with torches and clubs and chains. And, and guess who's leading the charge? You remember? Judas. Isn't it weird that Judas actually was in the front? It doesn't say why. I mean, this is one of the 12. This is one of his 12 disciples. And he's leading the mob to Jesus. And he told them, hey, the one that I kissed, that's the guy. And what's Jesus calling when he shows up? He says, friend? Wow. And Judas kisses him. It's like, you, are you betraying with the sign of friendship? Friend? The guards bind him. And all of a sudden, this little fight breaks out. One of the disciples pulls out a, a sword and chops off a dude's ear. The guy's, ear, the guy's name was Malchus. It's written in the book of John. And then you ever just sit there and go, and it was Peter, good old Peter. You ever wonder what he was aiming at? Like, what was he going for? Unless he's like the greatest swordsman ever, and he's just like, shh, shh. come, who's next? Maybe he's that guy. Or maybe, maybe he just goes, da! Hacks off the dude's ear, and Jesus is like, oh, Peter, put it away. Put that is embarrassing. Put it away. And then what's Jesus do? Picks up the dude's ear and heals the guy. I've been honest. I would have been a little frustrated. And if I did it, I probably would have put it on backward. <laughs> now you can hear behind you. When people talk behind your back, you're good. He heals him. And all the disciples bolt. They take off. 
And Jesus is bound and taken into the courtyard of the high priest. This is an illegal trial. It's the middle of the night. They can't be doing it. Friends, they're just trying to get rid of Jesus. They don't care about law. They don't care about justice. They're just trying to what? Get rid of the guy. Those on our planet who've been oppressed, they have a savior and a God who understands what it's like. So they ask him and they're slapping him around and they're, they're beating up on him and and pretty much at some point, the high priest just says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus quotes out of Daniel, pretty much saying, yeah, and from now on, you're going to see me coming with the clouds. And it's a messianic prophecy, and he applies it to himself, and the high priest tears his robe. He says, what else do we need to hear? This is blasphemy. He deserves to die, and they take a vote. Of the religious leaders who were there, they all, they all agree he deserves to die. So they take him to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod, who's kind of a fake king. Herod's like, I don't want to deal with this. He didn't do any tricks. He didn't do any signs. Send him back to Pilate. This is all fast forward because I got to get going through the message. He's standing before Pilate. He's not really saying anything. And Pilate's having this conversation, asking him questions, and Jesus isn't saying anything. And all of a sudden, Pilate goes, do you not understand that I have the authority to release you? And then Jesus speaks up, and this is my paraphrase of what it is that Jesus said. After Pilate says, do you, not, do you not understand that I have the authority to release you? Jesus, my paraphrase, looks at him and says, oh, Pilate, you're JV. Welcome to varsity. You got no play here. This is out of your hands. This has been put into place before God, before I said, let there be light. Guys, we got to remember, the plan for the cross of Christ was not a reaction to the fact that the fall happened in Genesis 3. The plan of the cross was always plan A, always. How do I know? Because for before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in him, according to Ephesians 1. So if it happened, if that was the plan and you were chosen in Christ, he picked you before the foundation of the world. Well, that means the fall that came after the foundation of the world... God already knew it, already had the plan. God knew all that would happen and still said, this is what I'm going to do. All this, why? Because he's so stinking crazy about us. He loves us. From that moment on, Pilate tried to get him released. And so Pilate thinks, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have him flogged. He doesn't deserve death. I'll have him flogged. <clears throat> Friends, this is what flogging is. They would take Jesus and strip him of his clothes, and there'd be a vertical beam, and they would take Jesus' wrists and bind them with a leather strap and then attach his, his wrists to this vertical beam. They would take two Roman guards, one on each side, holding what's called the cat of nine tails. So pick, picture a stick about 18 inches in length, and tied at the end of that stick are pieces of leather strips. And at the end of those leather strips are pieces of glass and razor and bone and sharp rock, Friends, it becomes a claw, and 39 times from his neck to his calves, they would come across the back of Jesus, and they would slap it on him, and then they would change the angle and pull it as hard as they could so that it would rip open his back. It wasn't just a whipping, it was a mutilation. 39 times, why? That seems like a, a weird number. Why? Because too many people died at 40. So they bring it back one. 
Can you imagine after 39 and they untie his wrists and he collapses to the ground. Then the guards come over and they bring him up and they find this purple robe and they put it around him. And then they found these thorns and they made a, a crown out of it. And then they, they put him before five to 600 Roman guards and all of them start to mock, all oh, hail, king of the Jews. And they have no idea who they're looking at. The image of the invisible God, the one who created everything is letting them do it. The Bible says they would blindfold him. They'd punch him in the face. They'd prophesy who hits you to make sure the crown stayed put. The Bible says they would take a rod and smash it against his skull just to make sure it stayed there. And Jesus just took it. And they bring him back before Pilate. Do you realize that Isaiah in his, right, in, his, in, his, uh, in his prophetic book like Isaiah, I don't know if it's 52 at the end or 53, but it says he was so badly marred, it was beyond, he didn't even look human. And here's Jesus. He says, hey, it's customary this time I release one person. You want Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas is the murderer. He's like the terrorist of the day. This is like a church softball pitch. Every, he, he does it on purpose. Of course they're going to pick him. They pick Barabbas, not Jesus. Right? What the heck? And he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And then the chant starts from the same people. It's five days, give or take, before. We're saying Hosanna. Guys, remember we sang that song with that line, Hosanna, you know what the word means, Hosanna? It doesn't mean praise the Lord. It means save now. When Jesus rode in on that Sunday, the triumphal entry, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That crowd, that crowd that's surrounding him are declaring him to be the Messiah. They believe it. And less than a week later, they're calling for him to be crucified. And Jesus said nothing. So they take the robe off because why Pilate signed the edict, washed his hands in front of the people. He said, his blood is on your hands, not on mine, on you. And prophetically, they reply, not just on us, but on our children as well. And they had no clue they were speaking prophetically. And they put Jesus' clothes back on. They would take the cross beam that weighs between 70 to 120 pounds, and they'd place it across the shoulders of Jesus, in which he would then embrace. And he would have to walk some 600 yards after being beaten up all night, after going through this scourging where his back's been mutilated, he's bleeding like crazy, he then has to carry 120 pounds, 600 yards to his own death, but no one had to push him. He took the steps to where he was going to die. Why? Because he prayed, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am to see me in my glory. He walked forward. But at some point, he gets, it's too heavy. He collapses to the ground. Guys, can you imagine 120 pounds landing on your back? And he can't get up. He can't move. And so a Roman guard pulls a guy out and says, you need to carry it. His name's Simon. So he, can you imagine as he's trying to pick that up? And maybe he's trying to help Jesus up. And then can you imagine Jesus with one eye swollen looking? And maybe he just whispers, I want him to be with me. And what if he just stood up straight and he just started to limp and move forward, no one pushing him. Actually, what the Bible says, the crowd tried to break through the Roman guards so they could pull chunks of his beard out and slap him and spit on him. And he kept walking toward the cross. 
He gets to Golgotha. They would strip him naked of his clothing. They would take the crossbeam, attach it to the vertical beam, and they would take Jesus and lay him flat across the crossbeam and take one arm, completely stretch it out as far as they could, and take a railroad spike and drive it between the two bones in his wrist. Then they would take the other arm and pull it as far as they could and do the same thing with that. Then they'd take one foot, place it over the other, attach it to the vertical beam by driving a spike through both feet. You know what the Bible says Jesus said in that moment? And the way that it's worded in the original language, it's not that he said it once, it's that he kept saying it over and over. That as they're attaching him to the cross, everything that he's experienced, as they're attaching to the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know. He just kept screaming out for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him while they're doing it. And as that, as that cross would then be lifted up, gravity would be too strong for the one who created it. It would begin to pull his body down. Because of the angle of his arms and they're stretched out completely and he can't hold himself up, gravity would pull down. All of a sudden his shoulders would dislocate, his elbows would dislocate. And he'd be left there to die. There's historical accounts. People would be crucified. They would be alive on a cross for two weeks. Jesus is attached to a cross at nine. In order for Jesus to to exhale, see here he can inhale, but in order to exhale, he has to push up on the spike in his feet and pull up on the two in his wrist. You don't see him say a lot from the cross, and it's not these long breaths that would come out. It's more like, (laughs) for six hours. And he knew all this was coming, and yet I don't think that's why he sweat drops of blood. It's about noon. The sky goes dark like midnight. And he says this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, it's the only time when I see Jesus pray, he doesn't call God Father. This is my conviction that in that moment, He was experiencing the full and complete wrath of God for the sin of the world, every sin of the past, every sin of the moment, every sin in the future, taking it all, the Father pouring out His wrath on His Son. Can you imagine the agony of the Trinity in that moment? He took our place. That was our cross. And it wasn't too long after that. He just got done saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he whispers, it's been about six hours, and he whispers, it is finished. Guys, that's a banker's term. You know what Jesus literally said in that moment? Paid in full. All the Old Testament sacrifices that were set up, that there'd be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, for there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. All the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus coming to be the ultimate sacrifice, to take our place. The perfect one who was sinless took on the sin of the world so that God could what? Reconcile us to himself. Why? For God so loved the world. And right after he said that, he screams out, Father, I love that. He called him my God, my God. There's now this There's now this point where father and son, that relationship, intimacy is restored. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. The earth shook. The scene shifts back to the temple in the most holy place. In the most holy place, that's where the ark was, the ark of the covenant. 
And there was this curtain, some scholars say it's about 18 inches thick, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place is where they thought that God resided, and the curtain was torn from top to bottom as if God took his finger and slid it open, saying, you now have access to me because it's been paid in full. Guys, if I could tweet the scriptures into one statement, which I don't understand Twitter, but if I could, I believe the scriptures from cover to cover, this is the message. God with us, that we might be with him. God with us, that we might be with him. He made access to him. And then three days later, this is the most important part. And I used to live this part out. Because I could get people feeling more guilty if I didn't tell them this part. I get more decisions. My ego stroked. I feel like, man, look how awesome I am. And then God's reminding me over the years, you just kind of suck. Yes, I do. You're right. You love me? Oh, I can't get enough of you. You're fantastic. Yeah, you're great. But you're not that impressive. Guys, when I take out the best part of the story, I'm taking out the best part of the story. Three days later, he came back from the dead. He kicked death in the face and came back from the dead. Why is that so important? Because if Jesus couldn't beat death, then neither can we, and all is lost. The death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Nothing could hold him down. Nothing could keep him from resurrecting from the dead. Why? Because in a garden three days prior, he said, Father, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see me in all of my glory. The cross had to happen, and the resurrection was a necessity. Why would he do it? For God so loved the world. While we were enemies of him, Christ died for us because he loved us so much. The Bible says you're not saved by works. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith in Christ, what he's done, what he's accomplished. And this faith, not of yourselves, that faith is the gift of God. Not by works, why so no one can boast. For those that say, I just, give me a sign. I just gave you one. I just told you about it. The greatest sign that could ever be given is that Jesus took a cross and came back from the dead and pulled off Easter. All so that he could be reconciled, we could be reconciled to him. Because he loves you. So, here's what we're going to do. With every head up and every eye open. And please understand, you do not have to do this. You do not have to stand in order to be right with God. But I still remember when I was 17 years old, up at Hume Lake, third row, they have these pews, third row where it angles. That's when I stood up and I surrendered my life to Christ. It wasn't the standing up that saved me. It was the fact I surrendered to Jesus. What this moment is not is you're not accepting Jesus into your life because you don't have one. You don't have one outside of Christ. What it is, is it's surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. And when you say, I want to follow Christ, he says, great. Now, the first thing I want to give you is salvation and you're forgiven. I paid for it. For those of you that have a, you have a relationship with Christ, this isn't your time. You have surrendered, and you know that. But for those of you who've never surrendered your life to Jesus, friends, you cannot be right with God outside of a surrendered life to Christ. There is no forgiveness outside of being in Jesus. 
say, Brian, that's pretty closed-minded. I'm just going with what the book says. How, why, why do you say that there's not many ways, friends? I'm just thankful that God made a way. If Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not sure how you get around that and say, except. Friends, you can't make yourself right with God. That's why God reconciled us to himself, because we couldn't do it. So with every head up and every eye open, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, whether it was last night, sometime today, or if you're sitting there going, wait, I can be right with God? I can be forgiven? Yeah. And Jesus even says, I want you to count the cost, though, before you do this. Because he says, I want it all. I want you. I want everything that you are. Is he worth it? But friends, I guess the cross is his declaration that you are so with everyone looking, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ and tonight you say, I want to I give my life to Christ, but I want to remember I stood up on February 26th at Hume SoCal, and that's when I surrendered. If that's you, and again, you don't have to do it, but if you want to do it so that we can celebrate with you, that's the whole purpose. We're curious. If you say, I want to surrender my life to Christ and you never have with everyone watching, and I know it's a big deal. But if you would do me a favor, if you're surrendering your life to Christ, would you stand up just so we can celebrate with you? And everyone look around. Don't look at me. I'm saved. Look around. Anybody? Said You want to be right with God. I didn't know God loved me like that. Anybody? Okay. Say, oh, poor Brian. Like he sweat, you see me sweating up there when he's preaching. Because I sweat when I peel an orange, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> the beauty of it is I just have to, I just get to, I share the gospel, Jesus saves. But maybe for others of you, you claim to be following Jesus, but you're not following Jesus. The follow leader, realize there's only one rule in that game. Follow leader, uh-oh. Some say, well, I'm, just, I'm a Christian, I'm just not practicing. That's like me saying that I'm, a, I'm married to Kelly, but I'm just not practicing. You sit there and go, that's stupid. Guys, how is it any different when those of you that say that, say that about you following or a relationship with Jesus? You're not following him, you're not practicing. It's not something you practice, it's you're in relationship with God. But maybe you've rebelled. Maybe you took off. Maybe you're like Jonah, took off on your own. You got to come back. Or maybe some of you, you're broken. You've just been going through a really hard year. And maybe this is a time for you to say, God, would you please do something? And so if you would do us a favor, if you're in one of those two camps, and I don't need to know what it is. I don't know which one it is. It could be either one. But you're saying, oh, I got to come back. I've been, I've been walking away from the Lord, but I want to come back. Or, God, I'm really broken. I love you, but I'm having a hard time. Would you stand up? I know it's hard. For those of you that kind of walked away, 
What I want you to read is the second half of Luke 15 and watch the response of the father in that story. Cool? Just remember Luke 15, second half, and watch the response of the father. If you're broken, thank you for being honest. And God will heal. God will help. You just have to hang in there. In just a second, just don't sit down. Stay right there. In just a second, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, those of you that stood, or if you didn't and you need to stay back and deal with some things, and maybe it's like, I surrendered to Jesus, but I just can't stand up, Brian. Totally fine. But maybe for some, you need to stay back. What's going to happen is when I'm done, when I finish praying, you're going to walk out in this uh, discipline of silence. Those that don't need to stay back. And realize nothing's going to be happening pretty much in the camp. You're not missing out on anything. But if you say, I don't really need to stay back. This is not everyone stay and cry. That's not what this is. You stay back and deal with some things if you need to. But if you don't, what you're going to do is when I finish praying, you're just going to grab your stuff quietly, quietly. You're just going to stand up and you're just going to walk out the door quietly. Why? To show respect for those who want to stay back. Now, some of you say, Brian, I'm not a Christian. This has nothing to do with being a Christian. Just be respectful. Be a human who's respectful to other people. That's all you have to do. So when I'm done praying, if you don't need to stay back, you're just going to grab your stuff quietly, stand up, and walk out. But for those who want to stay back, you're going to stay here, and then your youth leaders and youth pastors, they're just going to love on you. They're going to tell you stuff, and they're going to hear your story, and they're going to pray with you. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Does that make sense what we're going to do? Cool? Okay, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done and are doing. Jesus, I thank you that you came and you gave your life. You laid down your life. No one took it from you. You laid it down and you took it back up because it was impossible for death to hold you down. God, for those who said they just got to come back, Father, I pray they experience grace, not judgment. Judgment happened at the cross, but grace. And God, for those who are broken, and they, need to, they just need to confess and deal, like, convey this to you and tell you this, God, Holy Spirit, you are the helper and healer. God, please heal. Help them. Remind them. God, you can handle it. You who put every star in place. You who measures the universe with the span of your hand. You who are eternal, without limit in power. God, I pray you do something tonight. God, thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says,